this week on the show, we cover OpenZFS auditing for storage performance in another Clara article, privilege drop, privilege separation, and restricted service operating mode in OpenBSD, the OpenSense 23.1.1 release, how to clone a system at Ansible, FOSDEM 2023 trip reports from NetBSD, the BSDCAN 2023 travel grants of FreeBSD Foundation, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 498, Dropping Privileges, recorded on the 1st of March, 2023. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling, because we don't need to do the ad spots anymore, because JT has so many of them already, he can mix them all together. With me saying the same things all over again. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. So once again, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome, everyone. We have a fresh episode for you with interesting headlines and also little bits and pieces from the BSD world, like we always do. Uh, but we start with another Clara article. This one is about OpenZFS auditing for storage performance. So that is an interesting uh, title. Let's get into it. So uh, the subtitle is Understand, Measure and Plan for your OpenZFS storage performance needs. And of course, the uh, sub-sub-headlines read, storage is complex and important uh, as part of any project's architecture, and it should be planned thoughtfully, ideally ahead of time. In this article, we'll talk about how to understand, measure, and plan for your storage performance needs. So, what bottlenecks storage performance? Consider a bottle of soda. The bottle itself is much wider than the neck where the cap screws on. But in order to get the soda out, you must pour it through the neck. And making the bottle wider won't improve flow if the neck remains the same diameter. This concept of bottlenecking, quote-unquote, can be used in nearly any computing performance discussion, very much including storage. There's typically one of several major factors which limits your performance, and that factor is what you must improve in order to get higher performance. Improving the others will have little or no effect, much like widening the base of a bottle, but leaving its neck the same. Well, that's a perfectly good analogy here. Um, so, understanding throughput is next. Um, throughput is by far the most common talked about storage metric, though it's rarely the most important one, typically measured in MIPS per second or megabytes bytes, maybe bytes per second. Um, throughput is a simple measurement of how rapidly your storage system can provide requested data to you. Technically, any measurement of data in megabytes per second is a measure of throughput. In practice, however, this metric is most commonly used as a measure of top-end throughput, how quickly a system can provide data under the most favorable conditions possible. So for this reason, although throughput is the simplest metric to, metric to understand, it's usually the least useful one. A hard drive rated for 200 megabytes or MIPS per second um, of throughput only achieves that rating for a large block of data and stored contiguously on disk and requested all at once. You know how often this happens? Yeah, exactly. If your conditions were always that ideal, you likely wouldn't be bothering with a performance audit in the first place. 
Okay, then there's another metric, IOPS. IOPS is an acronym for input-output operations per second. Technically, IOPS could be viewed as a specialized subset of throughput. You take your throughput measured in MIPS or megabytes per second, divided by your operational block size in megabytes and your operations per second. Of course, megabytes from manufacturers aren't the same as computer people count, so that's why they use this, uh, you know, this measurement here. In real usage, IOPS is typically used to represent the low-end performance of a storage system. Remember how throughput is typically measured under the best possible conditions? IOPS is typically measured under the worst. Small blocks of data typically not located in any particular order or grouping. The hard drive we used as an example above achieves 200 megabytes per second of throughput when we sequentially access data stored with a 1 megabyte block size, but only 0.8 megabytes per second or less of throughput when asked to store or retrieve non-contiguous data in a single sector of 4 kilobytes. So divide that by 0.8 megabytes by 4 kilobytes per operation and you get just under 205 IOPS. Hmm. What about latency? Is that's next. Latency is the inverse of throughput. Instead of asking how much data can we move per second, latency asks the question, how long will it take to retrieve or store a piece of data once I've asked you to? Although we typically ask speed questions in terms of throughput, latency is the way in which we experience it. Users don't really care if data moves through the system at 100 megabytes per second or 1 gigabyte per second. They care about how often they must stare at a wait icon and for how long they must stare at it before getting what they asked for. Much like throughput and IOPS, latency is frequently referred to in a very specific way. And in storage terms, latency is most or yeah, most commonly a reference to application latency. In other words, not just how long does it take to pull a megabyte of data off disk, but how long does it take for my database to return one megabyte of result from a query that I submitted. And when used to refer specifically to hardware. Latency must commonly refer to seek latency of rotational hard drives. Remember those? The time it takes the head to skip from one track to another and wait for the target sector to rotate under the head when reading non-contiguous sectors. And then there was networking. That's uh, a separate read for you. And in the section you below, you put it all together. Like, how fast is it now? Then they talk about predicting your needs by understanding your workload. So you have throughput, IOPS, and latency all mixed together. And then you have various workloads or the expression of the workload, like for data databases, latency is everything. For virtual machines, we typically target IOPS. And for file servers, uh, throughput would be nice to have. Yeah, so that's where you uh, optimize in that area. Then they have a bit about measuring that performance, like using IOSTAT uh, or the separate IOSTAT part, uh, particular tool or ZPool IOSTAT if you happen to use ZFS. And they show you what these various uh, columns mean in the metrics that are put out. And Jim Salter, by the way, who wrote this article, uh, has the conclusions at the end. In order to design a successful storage deployment, you need to have a solid grasp of your own workload and how the major storage metrics, throughput, IOPS, and latency impact that. Aren't with this knowledge, you can select your individual drives, storage topology, and queueables to match. At Clara, I believe the vast majority of storage workloads are best served with OpenZFS, the open source storage platform that gives you the maximum configurability, data integrity, and maintainability to meet almost any storage performance need 
while keeping your precious data safe and secure. So if you're already an uh, OpenZFS expert, you've already got all the tools you need to design your perfect storage solution. But if you'd like expert guidance, we can help you benchmark and understand your current storage system, as well as offer configs and design assistance for maximum performance and reliability. Cool, so check out the whole article about details and figure out whether you are on the slow and or the performance side of your storage system. Cool. Next up, we have an article by Florian Obser, um, and it is on his blog post. It's on his blog at sha256.net. And the article is Privilege Drop, Privilege Separation, and Restricted Service Operating Mode in OpenBSD. Florian writes, my main focus in OpenBSD are privilege separated network daemons running in restricted service operation mode. I gave talks at BSD CAN and FOSDEM in the past about how I use these techniques to write Slack D and unwind D. Uh, and, <laughs> while I do not think of myself as a one trick pony, I have written some more slow CGI, rad, DHCP least, and Gelato oh, D. Oh, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> I wrote the first version of what later turned into Resolve D. At one point, I claimed it would take me about a week to transmogrify one daemon into a new one. Wizards, get your stopwatches. Privilege drop, privilege separation, and restricted service operating mode are exploit mitigations. When an attacker finds a bug, we try to stop them from causing damage. The mitigations we are talking about here are aimed at attackers that achieved arbitrary code execution. Due to other mitigations that is quite difficult to pull off, these are the last line of defense. We try to remove as many resources from the attacker to play with and try to crash the program as quickly as possible if an attacker touches something they're not supposed to. Privilege drop is probably the weakest mitigation discussed in this article. It's a very old technique, but still important for set UID root binaries. Theodorat refactored ping to over 26 years ago to open a raw socket early and then drop root privileges. This prevents a local user from elevating their privileges when they find a bug in ping. 20 years later, we realized that we would not drop privileges when ping is invoked as root. We would just drop from root to root. We can protect ourselves from a malicious ping target by dropping to a dedicated user. Ping needs a raw socket to be able to send ICMP echo request packets. This is an operation that only root is allowed to do. Once that socket is open though, ping no longer needs to do any privileged operation. It can hold onto a socket for later use and drop privileges. Another use for privilege drop is in daemons to restrict file system access by ch rooting to slash var slash empty. The daemon needs root privileges to call ch root, but afterwards it can run without elevated permissions. To the process, it looks like there is only the slash directory where it does not have any permissions. The standard pattern can be seen in, seen in front end.c of radd. Um, there's some code here. Um, yeah, ch roots to, to slash. We first get a user with get pwnam to drop to. The user has slash var slash empty configured as its home directory, so we can use that in ch root. Next, we ch dir to the new file system root to have a valid current working directory. This prevents us from accidentally marking a file system as busy depending on where the daemon was started, preventing unmounting file systems while the daemon is running. We then drop privileges by putting the user into a single group using set groups. The calls to set res GID and set res UID set the real and effective and saved group and user IDs. This safely drops from root wheel, in this case, to rad rad. 
with no way to escalate back to root. This technique is probably used most, if not all, in all OpenBSD's privileged separated daemons. Restricted service operating mode. With privilege drop-in ping, we prevent a local unprivileged user uh, from gaining super user or root privileges. If there were a bug in message parsing, a malicious ping target, or even a host in the middle, <laughs> sorry, the link to a bug in message parsing is a CV I fixed. Um, a, a malicious ping target or even host in the middle could still read and exfiltrate SSH private keys. Ping runs as my user ID. It can read all files my user can read. It can open network connections to any host on the internet. It can execute arbitrary programs. Heck, it can even talk to a GPU. That has a lot of power it does not need. It only needs to write to standard out and standard error and send and receive ICMP packets. We could lock ping away using chroot, that at least takes away file system access. But what we, what can we do about programs that need file system access but should not execute other programs or talk to the internet? Like the file command, for example. Decades ago, Niels Provost developed SysTrace, but it turned out it was difficult to use. The only user in OpenBSD base was SSHD. In 2015, Theodore Rat tricked Nicholas Marriott into privilege separating and sandboxing file using SysTrace. It lasted half a year. It was that painful. One problem with SysTrace was that it worked on the level of syscalls and their arguments. This is not something userland developers are intimately familiar with. We're interacting with libc and we don't know what kind of syscalls libc does on our behalf. Another issue is that a program might need some IO controls or syscontrols, but it should not be able to do all of them. So we need to encode restrictions on arguments of syscalls. This gets unwieldy fast. There was also SysTrace to define a policy outside of the program. It turns out that most programs need to do some sort of initialization where they need wide access to the system. This is before they touch any untrusted data. Once the initialization is done, we can restrict access. How much we can restrict access depends on the command line flags. SysTrace could not help with this. The program would retain all the privileges it needs for initialization. There, they would be fewer than all privileges, but they would still get, but still way too many. As far as I know, the experience with file was the last straw. Theo set out to improve this situation by developing Tame, which was later renamed to Pledge. Pledge was developed by studying all programs in OpenBSD base and putting their needed services into categories using broad strokes like memory management, read-write on open file descriptors, opening of files or networking, if a program violates what it pledged to do, for example, trying to open a file when it did not pledge our path, it will be terminated with an uncatchable SIG abort. It's worth repeating. If a program violates what it pledged to do, it will be terminated by the kernel. An attacker does not get to play again and try something else. This was an iterative process with patches floating around. A few co-conspirators, including myself, joined the effort a bit later to add pledge to more programs. Once we hit 50 or so pledge programs, they were considered mature enough for commit and work continued in the tree. Soon after the list of programs not pledged at all was shorter than the list of programs, pro programs pledged. This is a huge success and speaks to the usability of pledge. In decades, we only had one program using SysTrace and OpenBSD base. Then pledge shows up and in less than half a year, all, nearly all of OpenBSD base uses it. To add pledge to a program, we need to know what it does and potentially refactor it to pool, hoist, one-time initialization up before pledge is called for the first time. Some programs are sloppy in the sense that they open a certain resource the moment they need it. This means that they retain more access than they need. 
As we've seen with ping, if we pull opening of the raw socket before option parsing, we can drop root privileges before touching untrusted data. Since pledge is internal to the program, we can call it once we are done with the option parsing and pledge different things depending on given options. For example, ping retains the ability to do DNS lookups depending on the end flag. Pledge is not fine-grained. It turns out that programs fall into broad categories of what they want to do after initialization. There are not hundreds of different promises for every obscure program. It's not needed. To add a new promise, a rule of thumb is at least two programs have identified that need need a new promise. To add a syscall to an existing promise, that is to give more power to an existing promise, needs careful evaluation of what all other programs already using the promise gain. It is not enough to show that it is fine for the new program. Existing programs are much more important. Another question is how much additional kernel attack surfaces exposes. Pledge does not only protect the user of the system or systems on the internet from harm when a bug is found, it also protects the kernel from user land. Checking if a syscall is allowed happens early before a lot of kernel code runs. Pledge can be used to gain an understanding of what a program does. You see the following pledges in file. Um, it pledges um, four times for different things. The reader is encouraged to stop here, uh, the listener will have to try harder, uh, and read the code around the pledge calls to figure out what file does and why it pledges those things. Privilege separation. A single process design that pledges standard IO, INET, R path still has a lot of attack surface. This is not good if a network daemon running as root and enabled per default on all installations. Like DHCP lease D, uh, for example, for starters, it can read and exfiltrate SSH private keys. As we've seen in file, we can split the program up into multiple communicating processes that each pledge, list, pledge less operations than the sum of all pledges. We can move the risky operations of parsing untrusted data to a process that does not need to have access to the internet nor the file system. That process will also not have any elevated privileges to change the system configurations like configuring network addresses or changing the root table. An attacker who finds a loophole in the least privileged process will have a hard time creating havoc. They could only talk to more privileged processes using a very narrow communications channel with easy to parse messages. Uh, and then follows is an introduction of OpenBSD network daemons, which is quite long, but I do recommend you go and read it because it's quite interesting. And then we get to the epilogue. Writing software in C with security in mind can be a lot of fun when standing on the shoulders of giants and having things like privilege separation and restricted service operating mode in your toolbox. I wrote two daemons, DHCP least D and slag D uh, that are enabled by default on every OpenBSD installation. We might eventually add a third one. Having the mitigation shown here as well as other mitigations constantly being added and enabled by default is what lets me sleep at night. I am cautiously optimistic that when a bug is found in DHCP least D or slack D, an attacker will have a hard time pivoting to arbitrary code or execution as root. All right, slackers. Um... We stay a little bit on the security side of the BSDs in the news roundup here. Uh, because OpenSense 23.1.1 has been released, and the release notes here are in the OpenSense forum, and go like the following. Apart from security updates for operating system and third-party software, this mainly fixes issues with the initial 23.1 release. IPsec and unbound components in particular receive a number of improvements being the more prominent area of work for this series. 
Unbound also gained a safe search option and the new reporting database CPU usage should be much lower and easier to use. Okay. Overall, we're happy with how the major release turned out and look forward to further fixes in like NetMap framework or including Suricata changes for multi-threading support, which has been in the works for a long time. OpenVPN 2.6 update and related changes are also pending at the moment. The roadmap for 23.7 will be published soon and will again include a number of MVC slash API conversions for static components. Statistics do indicate that we are over 60% done with converting the code base to a modern framework as compared to early 2015, which is now already over eight years old. Oh yeah. Okay, here are the full patch notes. So a couple of these um, in the system area, they fixed the assorted PHP 8.2 deprecation notes. So the system also removes overreaching reconfigure a plugin facility, cron jobs, and backend command that has no visible users, uh, fixing to uh, VLAN interface renames, and missing a config block on delete. Uh, the firewall got a couple changes to prevent possible infinite loops and alias parsing. They uh, did not calculate local port range for an alias. They also updated the validation of alias names to be slightly more restrictive. And they safeguard the download geolite and lock uh, uh, errors. Uh, IPsec, as mentioned, got a couple fixes for username parsing or migrating the duplicate cron jobs. Uh, Unbound is a big block here. And uh, source as well, because all these are also kept in sync with upstream. Very nice. Um, in addition to the ports uh, for uh, newer versions of Lite TDPD, OpenSSH Portable, OpenSSL 1.1.1T, uh, and the PHP 8.1.15 release. Stay safe, your OpenSense team. Cool. Next up, we have a, a blog post from Joe uh, on their blog, kernelpanic.life, and they write about cloning a system with Ansible. Joe writes, I've all, I've, Joe writes, I've wanted a tool to take an existing system and create an Ansible playbook that will duplicate it. This would let me set up a laptop how I want it and then quickly reproduce that setup on a different laptop without having to remember what I did. As far as I know, there's nothing out there that does this, since the only way to find out is to spend hours writing it myself and then discover someone else way better than me has done it. I wrote a small Python script called Ansible Clone for this purpose. It will detect all the installed packages on the system on which it's running, find all the enabled services, including the contents of any config files you provide, and generate an Ansible playbook to duplicate this. The config files are provided by giving Ansible clone an any file that looks something like this. Um, there's a path and a pf.conf. The contents of these files will be placed in the playbook to be copied to those same paths when Ansible is run. Putting them all together, you would do something like ansible clone-c configs.ini-f playbook.yaml. The resulting file playbook.yaml can then be copied to a different system and, can, and you can run ansible playbook, playbook on it to duplicate the system from which it came. The script is super rough and a work in progress. It produces valid YAML, which is proof that there is a god because any YAML that is actually valid is to be considered a miraculous event. Currently, it only supports FreeBSD and OpenBSD, but adding support for other operating systems is just a matter of adding in the proper package and service listing commands. And instructions are in the readme if you want to hack on it. Eventually, I'd like to add Linux support too, but my priority right now is getting it working well on the BSDs. And it's on GitHub if you want to try it next, Joe. Oh, okay, yeah. 
hey, why didn't I think of that? Because Ansible kind of scans the machine with a lot of uh, like the initial setup um, and gets a lot of information out there. So the logical next step is to try to use that and make backups of that target if you have the proper <laughs> permissions. Okay, well, I will uh, think about this a little bit more. So thanks for the uh, submission that was received to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Next up, uh, we have a FOSDEM entry from the NetBSD blog. Uh, remember FOSDEM? That has been uh, in February at the beginning, but people have been uh, blogging about their experiences and what kind of talks they saw, and this one is from Pierre Brancheri. Hopefully that's correct. One day I will get it right. Um, so that goes, FOSDEM took place last week, uh, back in the day when it was written, February 8, that blog post is from, as an offline first event again for the first time since 2020. Yep, conferences are starting again, which is nice to see. It was located as usual at the university campus of the ULB in Brussels. It was packed with developers, users, passionate and professionals of open source software. Huh. And while NetBSD did not have a booth this year, its presence could be felt on Saturday morning at the BSD Dev Room, thanks to the many developers who made it to the conference. Good. Together with Rodrigo Osorio of the FreeBSD project, uh, he had the pleasure to help manage the Dev Room, have a front seat for the talks, and even start the session by introducing the BSD Driver Harmony Initiative. Some of these are linked from the blog post, so you can get there directly. The staff and respective speakers are currently busy uploading slides and reviewing videos. So keep in mind to check again for new content in the coming few days and weeks if you missed anything or need to dig further into any event from this awesome conference in case you missed that. I guess by now most of them should be ready or available. So check out the FOSDEM website. Finally, uh, he would like to thank the NetBSD Foundation for sponsoring him to manage the room and attend the GSOC meetup. Excellent. Good stuff all around. I couldn't make it this year, but I try to be there next time. All right. Next, we have an announcement from the FreeBSD Foundation, uh, and they write, BSDCAN 2023 Travel Grant Application Now Open. On the 15th of February, that's quite a long time ago, uh, the Travel Grant Application for BSDCAN 2023 is now open. The Foundation can help you attend BSDCAN through our Travel Grant Program. Travel grants are available to FreeBSD developers and advocates who need assistance with travel expenses for attending conferences and related to FreeBSD development. BSDCAN 2023 applications are due the 5th of April, 2023. Did you know the foundation also provides grants for other technical events? If you feel your attendance at one of these events will benefit FreeBSD project and community and you need assistance getting there, please out, fill out the general travel grant application. Your application must be received seven weeks prior to the event. Was was BSDCAN 2022 in person? I don't think it was. No, that was virtual. Yeah, it was a virtual. Maybe that's... Mm. Uh, oh, cool. So I guess it's the first in-person one for a while. <laughs> I would have tried to go there if it was in person. Uh, but yeah, good to know that the foundation is sponsoring. So if you are still thinking about it, then maybe, um, yeah, applying for a travel grant will make that possible for you. Uh, should we actually mention our special thing we're trying to do there? I mean, I don't know if we're allowed to, but yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. So. See, if Dan had, if Dan had spoken to us today. Okay, then, yeah. So the schedule um, isn't out yet for BSDCAN, but has been uh, in the final stages of contacting um, the speakers and tutorial holders. And uh, we just wait 
um, for feedback and that they can make it so that the final schedule can be published. Maybe next week we have the schedule available. Also maybe have an interview with Dan Langell himself uh, of Mr. BSD Conference, uh, BSD Can Conference fame. So we'll see. And then we have a good chance to hear from him directly what the conference is uh, doing in terms of restarting and trying to, you know, um, preventing people. You haven't, you haven't said the news, Benedict. You've just said other stuff. What was that? You haven't said the news. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> the news. Just, just not tell anyone. Yeah, so Tom will be speaking. Ah. Uh, okay, at, at BSD Can 2023, um, we are going to bring you a live yeah. episode of oh, very first now. one. And so if you can make it to the conference, we're going to put on a special episode to celebrate 500 episodes of BSD Now. Now, of course, this is episode 498, so 500, episode 500 will happen first. But we still get to celebrate doing this for, you know, nearly a decade uh, before. Yeah. It's certainly worth doing that. And uh, if you're interested in that, we will record this after the actual conference schedule so that we don't block a room or if we you don't know uh, run over, we will have... You don't know this. The, the schedules the schedules for Botan, you're not allowed to share this. <laughs> schedules are for under, um, weekly embargo. No. Um, so if you're interested <laughs> in listening in how we do this show or this very special one with everything that could go wrong or right, then uh, there will be news... Uh, following up to the conference. I, I mean, I have I have plans, but I've not told anyone what they are. So who knows what will actually? Oh happen. yeah, we keep it a secret. So far. Well, I, I'm not meant to keep it a secret from from the three of you though. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, then we'll uh, find ways to communicate after the recordings are over. Of course, so we, no we don't know if we'll manage to record or if we try and record it will work. And so the best way to see BSD now live is to come to BSD Can in, yeah. in Ottawa. Well, how how more live could you view? Um, so there's plenty of audio equipment probably there because of the streaming that we're trying to do again, um, but we don't want to take risks. So um, is Canada we'll real life? Inform you if there's something new in this regard. Okay, let's jump into the. <laughs> oh, look what JT did here! Yeah, Remember okay, I'll, that I'll we typically it. have this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this week we're in the Halloween mood, and rather than the beastie bits, we have the undeadly bits. And yeah. so first up in our whirlwind tour of uh, OpenBSD Journal news from Undeadly.org, coming right out of the, from the game of dog fooding department, Stefan Sperling tooted, Game of Trees has reached another milestone. We now offer public anonymous access to our Git repository via SSH using our own server implementation available in the port tree of OpenBSD current. Um, and some see the full message for host key fingerprints. And in other news, version 0.81 has been released and the port updated. And it includes uh, got D print configuration errors without dash D, got D move end repos check to parse config, um, got D move socket path check to parse Y, fix an issue where multiple ref updates are rejected by got D, fix an issue where got D fails to accept multiple have lines from clients, regress, replace typeset with printf for shell portability. Fix spurious got sh unexpected flush packet error when client is up to date. Got d fix bad pack file with zero objects. Got d document the got d n option. Congratulations to all involved. Mm -hmm. it, it's a whirlwind right. Benedict. You need to whirl. It's whirling, yeah. So, but I now have to uh, remain with the title 
music in the rest of the day of my head. Uh, anyway, uh, there's a Game of Trees daemon and video slides from uh, FOSDEM 2023 from Stefan Sperling. Um, he, because he presented a talk on Game of Trees there. Dun, 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 dun. Um, video and slides on Stefan's presentation are also now available. So check out if you want to learn more about Game of Trees. That was from the Got Video department. Coming from the Harder and Harder department. Um, I don't know who wrote this. Um, uh, Rudia. Uh, support for execute only, X only code, on which we reported earlier, there's a lot of parentheses there, um, has been committed by uh, to current by Theo Durat, Durat at. The commits were on CPU with the PKU feature, prot equals prot exact pages, now create PTE, which contains PGXO, which is the new PKU key one. On every exit from kernel to userland, force the PKU register to inhibit data and read against key one memory. On some traps into the kernel, if the PKU register is changed, abort the process. Processes have no reason to change the PKU register. This provides us with a viable X-only functionality on most modern Intel and AMD CPUs. I started with a XSave base diff from DVAT, but discovered the FPU save restore logic wasn't a good fit and went to direct register management. Disabled on HV VM systems until we know how they handle PKU correctly. And AMD64 now has X only support via PKU, marking LD.SO exec only is now no longer a NOP on those systems. Let's do it. As usual, testing creatively for potential breakage between now and the upcoming release would be much appreciated by the developers. Okay. Then, following up with Erupting Devices Department, following a wide-ranging thread on uh, OpenBSD's MISC mailing list with the subject Safely Remove USB Drive, Crystal Conley P wrote an article about open, how OpenBSD handles movable media centered around the eject command, also known as MT. The article leads in, does issuing an eject command to a USB flash drive make it spontaneously fly across the room? And you can follow the link to using bin eject with USB flash drives to read the whole thing. Okay, coming from the stretch my guard department, Rob Turner writes in about a practical guide to running VXLAN over a WireGuard WG4 connection. Rob writes, I struggled to find much more than Reich's talk and the man pages, so I thought it would be useful to document. So Rob wrote up an article, which you can read here, and you can find the post that describes where the article is in the show notes. Oh. Also nice. This one is from the Oh My Console department. As part of the efforts for developing patches for the console, many of which have been committed recently, uh, Crystal Colipe again created some patches for taking screenshots of the OpenBSD console. She wrote an in-depth article coding new iOctals to produce screen dumps from the console about her work. Very nice. Uh, we will look forward to further development and refinement on this. I have not read the article, but scrolling through the page is very um, startling. There are a lot of windows in this page. Yeah, to show how the screen dumps look. <laughs> nope. No, it's not what you think. Uh, coming from the uh, anti-brop oh, department. My page took a while to load. Yeah. <laughs> oh, here we go. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, you I should see what it. you mean. Uh, coming from the <laughs> anti-brop department, Theodorat Duratat posted to tech a status report and two test programs regarding exec only, X only. The report begins, we've made good progress in the X only effort. So here's a small summary. Architectures crossed over completely. ARM64, XBit without implied R and MMU. RISC64, 
RISC-V64, X bit without implied R in MMU, AMD64 using hardware PKU feature, PowerPC using a feature similar to PKU, HPPA using a gateway feature. Comments are closed. Okay. And this one, it's the Puffy and the Moose department. Uh, we all know that OpenBSD is led from Canada, but what is the status in that country by and large? Uh, bringing up the subject, Katie McMillan uh, wrote in saying, um, I'm, quote, I'm looking for Canadian OpenBSD contributors for Q&A, and they haven't been easy to find. You would think they would be, considering that the person who started the project is from Canada, but it hasn't been. Does this mean that OpenBSD is dead in Canada, followed by a longer discussion, uh, which... Uh, can be summed up with a resounding is OpenBSD in Canada dead? No. And you can delete, uh, delete. you can read the rest of the article there. Coming from the remember when SysTrace was the new hotness, the editor does department, um, <laughs> Florian Obser, who we whose article we read earlier, wrote an extensive piece, which we didn't read all of, with great attention to detail titled Privilege, Job Privilege, Separation and Restricted Service Operating Mode in OpenBSD. As implied by the title, Florian's writing covers a wide range of exploit mitigation efforts within OpenBSD. And we've read the article, so you don't have to. No, you, we've read some of the article. You should go and read the article. Yeah, in detail. Yeah, read, read the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good to highlight that. <laughs> It came out again. Yeah, it came back from the dead, right? Um, from the bowels of you, this episode. Well, you know, that does happen in March. It's the month of zombies, right? Spring zombies. No? Yeah, it's it's out of season a little bit. No, it's not. Unless That's you're... when you get zombies. Classical zombies, not winter zombies. Yeah? I have to say I'm not that into zombie. I think better uh, will get my reference in about four hours. Yeah. No, it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Please, please write in if you understood what I was. <laughs> you will be playing. smarter than me at the moment. It'll boost our engagement um, with the algorithm. It won't know the algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, finishing up the undeadly bits today with Theodorette on Pins' call. And that comes, of course, from the Pinhead department. <laughs> Theodorette posted on the tech mailing list entitled Pins' call, XXVE, and Rob Pivots. Um, that explains Pins' call of Misty's latest security innovation. And the posting is provided in full there. I suggest you read it. It's related to uh, ROP and DASLR, the anti-ASLR. So uh, figure out what that means in the whole uh, message. BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated so that band it then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. And this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties, so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more.
Okay, that was interesting. JT kind of got us on the interesting side here with the undeadly bits, but something new uh, is always welcome. Uh, feedback and questions this week is um, the section where you can send us a question and we'll try to answer them to the best of our knowledge and abilities. Uh, feedback at BSD now is the address for you to do exactly that. Doesn't have to be questions, could also be comments, show notes, ideas, blog posts you found or written yourself. Anything BSD related that might be of interest. First one is Kevin with P L U G, or is it plug? Just in all plug. caps. We'll find out. Hi, BSD Now crew. That goes. I wanted to let you know that PLUG is resuming in person meetings from February 2nd. Ah, this is a uh, meetup. Excellent. We haven't met in person since March 2020. Oh, yeah. A lot of people haven't for safety reasons. You can find the details here. We'll be happy to click that link and provide it to our listeners. Past listeners hearing this can attend the March meeting. Yep. Or future ones as well. Thanks and keep up the great show. Thank you, Kevin. So, that is the Portland Linux user and Unix user group. So to be complete. Okay, they have regular meetings uh, monthly. I guess, oh, I I guess so. Tell. When else would you meet? Okay, and the next piece of feedback we have is from Luna. And Luna writes, Hey, catching up with this year's first BSD Now episode. Also nice to see Benedict and some other familiar faces at FuzzDem. Were you at FuzzDem, Benedict? Yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't make it this year. It's unfortunate. Uh, people were probably looking forward to or looking for me or Alan or <laughs> even Tom or JT. Uh, JT probably has never been to FuzzDem as far as I can tell. But uh, unfortunately, we couldn't make it. Uh, I hope you aren't too disappointed. Uh, there are other ways to meet us at conferences this year. Or the chances are higher than in the pre-pandemic. Will, will you be at BSD Can, Benedict? BSD Can. I am targeting Euro BSD Con and maybe some other smaller events in Europe and Germany, uh, which I'll probably uh, mention in this uh, uh, podcast that I'm doing. You probably have heard of it. So sorry about that. Maybe next time. Um, yeah. Hopefully you enjoyed uh, FOSDEM all the, all the more for it. Okay, that is the end of this episode, interestingly enough, with some uh, <laughs> undeadly bits and pieces there. Hope you like that part. Let us know on feedback at bsdnow.tv. You can also send us tweets to bsdnow at twitter.com. Is anyone still using that? I'm not sure no, no one uses Twitter. Thing. Yeah. Uh, other than that, uh, we'll be happy to have you again next week at the same spot at the same time and yeah enjoy your time till then bye